1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, back fresh from Australia. I'm joined this week by our space scientist, Phil Rosenberg. Hi, Phil. Hi. And also our physics guru, Dave Ansell. Hi there. Now, coming up this week, we're taking a look at any science questions you've got for us because it's our science Q and A show. The contact details for that are coming up very, very shortly. Plus, we'll also be finding out why scientists are swollen with success, having found a chemical with Viagra-like properties in the venom of a tarantula. We'll also be hearing how scientists are using fish to guide submarines underwater and how NASA have launched their new their new telescope, which they're hoping to understand a bit more about how planets form around
0: nearby stars. It went up into the air this week. Not the way you'd expect, though. It was on a jumbo jet. Also this week, we'll be hearing how doctors have used maggots to get rid of MRSA in diabetics with ulcers, and we'll also be catching up on the latest discoveries from the world of chemistry, including why tomatoes used to, like, used to taste like cucumbers, and how beetles use the smell of bees to come in the
3: hives. And in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll be showing you how to build a, how to build a camera. If you want to have a go, all you need is a magnifying glass and a window. There's a price of first person through on the phone with the correct result. And also, another way to win something,
1: and that's a copy of my book, by the way, Naked Science, it's full of fun and funky science stories like the kind you'll hear here on The Naked Scientist, is to have a go at our teaser this week. Can you tell us, and it's quite tricky, how many one gigawatt power stations would it take to generate the equivalent amount of energy as the Gulf Stream, that's the warm water coming from the equator northwards, as the Gulf Stream brings to Europe? Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Now kicking off with an exciting story this week, because scientists down in uh, the Medical College of Georgia have responded to what can be described as anecdotal reports of people coming into the emergency room, the casualty department, having been bitten by a kind of tarantula. and The the name of this spider is Phonutria nigriventa. It's a fairly big tarantula, but when people were bitten by it, as well as the usual symptoms of being bitten by something poisonous, in other words, you get pain and swelling, the male people who came in, complain that they had an erection that wouldn't go away. And why doctors are very excited about this is because this suggests that there's something in the venom of that spider which acts on blood vessels. So as well as possibly holding the clue and the, pos- and the solution to solving the problem of impotence, it might also give us some clues as to new ways to tackle the problem of blood pressure and blood vessel-related diseases. Now, the work's been done by somebody called Kenya Pedroza Nunes, who's actually at, Medical, at the Medical College of Georgia. And what they did was to take samples of the venom from this spider and then analyze it chemical by chemical by injecting these chemicals into male rats until they found one, which they've it's a small protein which they've dubbed TX26 and that was the one which reproduced the same effects as you see in humans. And then they analysed how it works, and it's very different to any other class of drugs that we have to try and control blood pressure and make blood vessels do things. What this one does is it acts on a substance called nitric oxide, and nitric oxide is a small chemical And it dilates blood vessels. So when you put this into a person or a rat, then it goes to all the blood vessel walls and it causes them to make lots of this nitric oxide, which causes blood vessels to open up. So the researchers are really excited because this opens up a new avenue and a new target for trying to make drugs that can control vascular disorders. Wasn't Viagra found by mistake in a similar sort of way? Yes, they were looking for uh, a treatment for trying to deal with the problem of high blood pressure and open up blood vessels, and lots of the people who were entered into the trial complained of the same symptom of these people who were being bitten by spiders, and they realised that that Viagra was much better at actually curing the problem of impotence than curing the problem of high blood pressure, so it got marketed as an anti-impotence drug. And hasn't it done well? I mean, it makes uh, Pfizer, who make it, I think in the order of the latest figures, $434 million
3: dollars. Every year. Here's another story about scientists borrowing from nature. Scientists would like to build computer-controlled submarines that can be used in complex tight spaces like coral reefs or wrecks or oil rigs, etc. The problem is to avoid hitting things you need to be able to see all, all around you because if your current blows you backwards and you crash into the oil rig then you've ruined your submarine. Now, Malcolm McCliver and colleagues in Northwestern University in Chicago have been inspired by weekly electric fish. These are a group of fish that live mostly in Africa and South America, which have a sixth sense. They act a bit like a battery passing current through the water from one end to the other around them. They sense the voltage on their skin and normally they they know what that would be normally. But if there's something in the water, that causes the current to flow a different way through the water. Um, so if you have a piece of iron it, it, will flow through the iron, and if you had a bit of a bit of polystyrene, it would flow away from it. So it kind of, if you imagine the electric field as like contour
1: lines on a map, it sort kind of kinks the contour lines and, and the fish can pick that up.
3: Yeah, and they can measure the voltage on them, and then they can sh- measure that change.
1: And they, and they can work out how that change is related to how
3: big the thing is that's in the water. And roughly where it is. It probably never gives you as good a picture as you've got your, your eyes, but it gives you a general feeling of where things can are. they
1: tell what the composition is, because obviously if you put a massive lump of iron in the water, that's a very different kettle of fish, excuse the pun, than if you put, say, a lump of coral,
3: because it's very different electrical and chemical properties. Yeah, you'd probably be able to tell something about the composition. Um, the only problem, if something had the same conductivity as water, it'd be absolutely invisible. I mean, in the same way as if... It's a piece of glass, invisible. The the bottom line is, it tells you that there's something there. Yeah, that's right. And so Malcolm's been building his own version and has successfully detected objects in water with only a few sensors. And he hopes to use more of them in the future and detect more complicated shapes. And he'd like to be able to build agile mini subs, which you can wander around the base and not crash into this so it's almost like electrical sonar isn't it it's um, different principle but the same sort of result yes it's only works on very small distances though so it would only, it would only be useful in small spaces so you'd use it as a sort of
1: adjunct to yeah because sonar doesn't work
3: very well at short distances yeah sure so it's a perfect kind of thing Com- yeah, to add combination to it. Yep.
0: excellent so from down under the water to actually up in the air now the atmosphere to us guys on the surface is actually a really useful thing, let us us breathe, it stops UV getting in and burning our skin and stuff. But to astronomers it's a real pain in the neck, because this f- factor of blocking UV and other harmful radiation means that astronomers can't look and see certain types of radiation from stars and planets and things. And also what it does is it, it actually bends light, turbulence in the air actually makes the stars twinkle, that's what you see when you look up. And to astronomers that's a real pain because it blurs their images. Now, to get around this, we've, we've built things like the Hubble Space Telescope, or we put telescopes up on the uh, top of mountains so they avoid most of the atmosphere. But NASA have now developed a whole new way to do this. They've actually got a telescope, 20-ton telescope, and stuck it in the back of a jumbo jet. And they're actually now starting to fly this up into the air to get above 99% of the atmosphere. Is it
1: sort of piggybacking, then, on the top of the jet?
0: Well, actually, the way it works, they've actually had to cut a big section of the jumbo jet out at, near the tail to actually mount doors into the back, and basically the, the telescope's inside the jumbo jet, near the tail, and these doors are supposed to open up to let the telescope look out. Now, the first test flight of this was just this year, or sorry, just this week, and um, basically basically weren't sure how well it was going to fly because you, know, you stick a 20 ton mass in the back of a dum- jumbo jet and then a changes whole new it's aerob- totally changes aerodynamic properties absolutely so it was the first test flight this week and they just basically did some basic maneuvers just flying around a couple of turns to see how it worked and then came back down and landed again <laughs>
1: you wouldn't want to be the pilot on that would you you
0: wouldn't it sounds a bit hair raising to me there's
1: not really an ejector seat on a jumbo is there you can't you can't just can't just bail around. out no yeah. absolutely
0: so you're stuck if it They it's, must have been pretty on. confident
1: it was going to fly
0: i think they were they've no doubt modelled it quite carefully on, on computers and things so these doors sort of slide to
1: one side, the telescope points at the sky, so... What sorts of quality of images would you think you can get from that, Phil? Because obviously the telescope's moving, there must be a lot of vibration, there must be problems with turbulence.
0: Does not I mean, sound easy? It's not easy at all, and this thing will have some really complicated computer control to keep it accurate and to keep it pointing in exactly the right direction. But actually we've been doing this sort of thing for quite a long time. Even back in, sort of, decades ago we were sticking telescopes on the end of rockets, shooting them up into the atmosphere and looking at X-ray sources, and that was how the first X-ray astronomy was, was done. So we've been doing this kind of thing for quite a while now, and it's certainly... And going to be worth, you know, sticking it on jumbo jet and all the expense that's going to be involved in that to get up above 99% of the atmosphere to look at... Basically, it's infrared it's looking at, so looking at dust clouds, it's thermal radiation, looking at dust and how planets are forming in those dust clouds. Why do you want
1: an aeroplane to do that? Because I remember Dave sitting here a few months back saying, scientists are now exploring the idea of, rather than going to the expense of putting satellites into space, they're going to build massive airships, sling these sort of signal reflectors and transducers onto the bottom of the airship. This can go very, very high up in the atmosphere... Problem solved. So why don't you just put these telescopes on big airships?
0: Well, I guess that's sort of a possibility, and that certainly should be something for the future. Um, At the moment, we don't have these big airships, but we do have jumbo jets, so we're working with today's technology.
3: Now, going from looking at really big things a long way away, scientists are now using diamonds to study some of the smallest things in the universe. Um, in big particle physics experiments and nuclear reactors, you want to detect high energy particles coming out of the collision or just out of the reactor. And the normal Did way of doing, to, to find out what, so, so that they can study what happened in the collision, and because the only way the collisions are so tiny, the only way you can work out what happened is by what's flying out of them. So this is sort of probing questions as in, when the Big Bang
1: happened, how did all the matter get created? Or when when you have these high-energy particles slamming into things, what does this tell you about what it's made of and and stuff?
3: Yeah, that's the the really big questions. Um, Now, in these, so the normal way of doing this is by using a silicon sensor. This is made with a lump of silicon where all the electrons are stuck to the atom, so it won't conduct electricity. But if a particle hits it, the electrons are knocked off, and then they can move around, and they can conduct electricity, and you get a pulse of electricity, which then you know there's a particle gone through there. So that's how you get the information out? Uh, Yeah, that's how you know that there's a particle gone through your detector, and then you can plot that on a computer, and you can get the data out. There's two problems with silicons. One is that it's not very strong, and the particles going through it can actually knock atoms out and damage it. Um... And also, it's a bit too easy to knock the electrons off, and it can happen just due to thermal vibrations. When everything's hot, they vibrate. So you have to cool it down to that minus 200 degrees centigrade. So it's obviously not easy. It's not ideal. And it's expensive to do all the cooling, and it's just a load of extra hassle. Now, there's a company called Diamond Sensors, which are based in Berk- Berkshire, that they've got, I think they've got the solution, Diamond. This is, a Diamond's made up of carbon, which has got similar properties to silicon. It's just above it on the periodic table. Uh, and it's much, much tougher. Diamonds are known for being exceedingly tough, so the um, particles are do it less damage. And also, it's much harder to knock the electrons off. So it, so the thermal thing is not a problem, and it can work up to 100 degrees centigrade. And they've actually put them in the la- new Large Hadron Collider in CERN, which should be coming online at some point this year. So diamonds really could be
1: forever.
0: Let's hope that they can answer some of those questions that have been going on forever in physics, Phil. Absolutely. So, is there anyone at home there listening now that ever thought they could do a better job than NASA? Well, Peter Homer from Maine in the US has just done that and scooped a $200,000 prize for his efforts. He's actually designed a glove, an astronaut spacesuit glove, that's outperformed NASA's spacesuit glove in a competition, and he's won this $200,000 prize. How you work out
1: that it's outperformed it? What, what does that mean?
0: Well, the way they did it was um, this glove had to go through a certain number of tests. The first was a pressure test, where it was basically pumped up to a high pressure inside, and see basically when it bursts, when it starts to leak. And... This, this new glove actually performed better than NASA's glove. It could withstand a higher pressure. It also had a comfort test, so basically it was people trying it on, manipulating things with it under astronaut-type conditions to see how comfortable it was, how many blisters you got, and all that kind of thing. Because actually the, the gloves that they get at the moment, the astronauts, are actually really not that comfortable. They've got to be really chunky and insulated to keep their fingers warm, uh, and they've got to really withstand you know, high durability so they don't get damaged and leak all the air out.
1: So, how did he come up with this design, and and is he a professional astronaut wear
0: fashion designer then, or or is he just a sort of amateur? I'm fair. I'm not quite sure of his background, uh, but basically, he's done it with ordinary things that you'd not quite find about around the home, but things you can basically buy from the store almost. He used surgeon medical gloves for the inner sleeve of the uh, of the glove, and he actually used some material that he bought off eBay, <laughs> uh, some fabric that oh. he used for strengthening and insulation, and then he hand stitched the whole thing together himself. So. You know, a really tough glove, and uh, he's come up with this. You know, this glove and won the prize. However, if there's anyone at home that, that thinks that they can do better for other things, this is not the only competition that NASA run, run. There's actually another one next week, if you want to get, they get do your entry in quick. on a weekly basis do they? Like, not quite on a weekly the astronaut's basis. astronaut's
1: helmet this time, is it? Like, they're going to get <laughs> well, the whole new astronaut by the time they finished.
0: Well, actually, the next one is to design a digger for use on the moon, <laughs> uh, if you. for when the future air moon bases come online, so. For Earth moving on the moon. So get your entries in right quick. So, JCB
1: going to tender an,
0: an entry to that, then, do you think? I'm not sure. I think there might be something smaller scale than a JCB. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the
1: UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, a very exciting discovery was announced this week from scientists who are at the University of Manchester, and they've been exploring the question of how do you tackle the problem of MRSA? Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus and one of the scientists who is behind that work is Professor Andrew Bolton and he joins us to talk about it now. Hello Andrew. Hi. Thank you for agreeing to talk about the study. What was the basis for the work?
4: Well I'm a clinician and we treat a lot of diabetic patients with uh, foot ulcers as a consequence of loss of sensation and vascular disease that can injure their feet. They're often infected and we treat them with antibiotics Uh, but after treatment with routine antibiotics it's not unusual to get resistant organisms colonizing the wound Uh, and we have been using for the last 10 years or so maggots or if you prefer it larva therapy to treat these wounds and we observed uh, about a couple of years ago that a number of the MRSA contaminated wounds seem to be uh, cleared of this contamination by treatment with the larvae.
1: Is MRSA a major problem now in the community? Because traditionally, yeah. this, this was something which we bred in hospital by wide-scale use of, of, of antibiotics, and largely it was a hospital problem. So are you saying that now this is very much a community problem? There's people out there in their homes with it?
4: Sure, this MRSA is everywhere, basically. It, it was more common in hospitals, but most well, much of the MRSA we see now is community-acquired.
1: And so pre- presumably it's therefore a problem to get rid of because if you just chuck antibiotics at, at these patients, actually because it's MRSA, it's very difficult to clear.
4: Absolutely. These are very resistant organisms to a number of uh, of the more regularly used antibiotics. And MRSA develops because we've knocked out most of the sensitive organisms. So the, the challenge is how to remove this because we've already published a paper some years ago showing that those wounds with uh, contaminated with MRSA are slower to heal.
1: So what did you actually do in the study to exploit the maggots?
4: Yeah, The the first study we did was uh, an observational treatment of consecutive patients with MRSA colonized wounds with larva therapy. And we apply about uh, 100 sterile larvae of the green bottle fly to the wound. And um, these stay on for about three to five days. They go on the size of a small grain of rice and they come off about... I guess about 10 times larger, the sort of maggot you could see for fishing, uh, you use for fishing uh, tackle. So um, we l- used about three to five applications of these, and of 13 consecutive cases, 12 were completely cleaned, cleared out of the
1: MRSA. Why is that? What are the maggots doing that antibiotics won't do?
4: Well, that's what we're working with our microbiologists to see. But it does appear that the, that the maggot is a bit like a magnet, and you can imagine the MRSA as iron filings and it appears to be attracted to the cuticle. We're also uh, dissecting out larvae removed from wounds to see if they ingest them, and we're looking at a number of possibilities that maybe some of the the, uh, substances they secrete, for example, that uh, kill off or at least stop reproduction of the uh, MRSA bacteria.
1: So, in other words, the maggots' digestive juices that they're squirting onto the tissue that they're then going to eat are in some way also toxic to the bugs?
4: That's possible. That's been known for some time, that these may have a bacterial killing property. And, of course, the ideal would be to take this further, to to isolate whatever it is that is uh, active in the maggot that is uh, killing the MRSA, and perhaps to develop a treatment that doesn't actually require live maggots.
1: How did the patients feel about this when you said to them, would you like us to fill your wound with maggots? Um, I think we
4: don't quite say it just as you did. Uh, We explained that these have been used uh, literally for hundreds of years in wound healing, Uh, that they're bred on a sterile uh, nature, so they're not going to cause any problems, that most of our patients have nerve damage, so they have no sensation in these wounds, they're not aware of the larvae, Uh, and the fact is that these really do digest and remove dead and necrotic tissue as well as infection. So they're very good at cleaning wounds to allow healing to follow afterwards.
1: And when people do uh, get the sensation of the maggots in the wound, what do they say they feel like?
4: Um, Sometimes they're aware of just like a tickle or pins and needles or sometimes aware of minor movement but it's difficult to know how accurate that description is or rather it is that they know that they're there.
1: So presumably now you want to to try this not just in diabetic people but in people with all kinds of wounds and see if you can can have something which will attack MRSA in an effective way.
4: Well absolutely, Um, I'm a a diabetes uh, specialist so we now have a grant to do a proper trial because this is suggestive but not proof. In medicine, we need actual proof from a randomised controlled trial, so we're about to start uh, a trial where we randomise patients to either have uh, larva therapy or a a more standard treatment and to confirm our initial observations.
1: Thanks very much for joining us to talk about it, uh, Andrew, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. That's Professor Andrew Bolton, who's from the University of Manchester, describing how they've used in the people with diabetes and diabetic ulcers, maggots, to remove MRSA, methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus. And uh, following on from that microbiological theme, if you like, on next week's edition of The Naked Scientist, we'll also be exploring why about 10 million people in the UK end up locked to a loo seat for longer than they'd like to be every single year, just because of food poisoning. We'll be talking about how microbes cause food poisoning, and that's both bacteria and viruses. And we'll also be finding out some funky facts about fungi. Phil.
0: Back to this week, coming up shortly is Richard Van Norden from Chemistry World to explain to us why tomatoes once tasted like cucumbers and other chemistry news. But first though, don't
1: forget it's our science Q&A show. You just call in with your questions, and we'll try and answer them. Uh, Renée's on the phone. Hello, Renée. Hi. Hello, how are you?
5: Fine, thank you. Uh, what was your question? Uh, yes, I have a question about microwaves and about something that happened in my kitchen the other week. Um, I was warming up some leftovers. And uh, in the microwave, the food caught fire, which was probably due to some tinfoil or something that was left on it. Um, So that's not the mystery. But the mystery is that after I unplugged the microwave and uh, waited a few minutes to let everything cool down, I opened the door and the Pyrex plate that I had been cooking the food on suddenly exploded. And I would just like to know if you could tell me why that happened.
3: Now, when you heat up something like pyrex, it generally gets a bit bigger. And if you heat it up an awful lot, it'll get quite a lot bigger. And if you heat it up over a while, it, the whole lot, it'll get bigger all the way through. Now, if you co- if it cools down slowly, suddenly, then the outside of it is going to be shrink. But the outside is going to shrink before the inside does. So the outside of it's going to be in tension. It's going to be being, tried being pulled apart by the pyrex in the middle of the plate. Um, And so now, if there are some cracks on the outside of the plate, maybe you'd scratched it, or maybe they just build up by lots of these expansions and contractions. Um, if that crack gets long enough that it can start to travel through the plate, then all that pent up energy of the, um, of the outside being squashed, being, um, pulled by the inside can be released as a great big crack and your plate will split into two halves. If that makes any sense.
5: It does, yes.
1: Does that sort of answer that?
3: I've
5: heard of this, but what what I still don't quite get is what caused it to really explode with such a force.
3: Um, the force because um, the ex- expansion and contraction is a uh, it doesn't move very far, but um, it can, the forces are immense. If you've ever seen water freezing, you can blow apart um, cast iron pots with it. Uh, it will break apart mountains and things, so the forces are enormous, even though the distance is very small. So that it will release quite a lot of energy, enough to probably make it fly apart. I Rene, think, do you want to yes. quick go at the quiz? Yes, thank you. Plants pick up nitrogen from the
1: air to help them grow. Is that science fact or science fiction?
5: Um, that's fact.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I'm afraid no. Actually, plants take nitrogen from the soil and not from the air at all, so sorry. sorry. Next question. The average UK household pumps out about 12
1: tonnes of carbon dioxide every year. Is that science fact or is it science fiction? I'd say that's fact.
0: Yeah, absolutely true. Each one gets about 4 tonnes of of, uh, uh, carbon dioxide each person through all the other stuff. So that's about 12 tonnes for a household.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. So you got one out of two, which is not too bad. You're in the lead at the moment because you were the first person to do it. So uh, great hey. to have you on the programme, and okay. thanks for calling yeah. in. okay Take care. Bye-bye. Ray is in Sutton Colford. Hi, Ray.
6: Yeah, good evening, Chris. Um, first of all, can I just uh, congratulate you, Cleve, for, and you and the rest of the team for an absolutely excellent and unique programme. Can I
1: just um, say I didn't pay him to say that?
7: Okay.
6: <laughs> no, I actually listen to your, uh, your programmes via podcasts. I just wish that the uh, BBC and their wisdom would transmit your programmes to the rest of the country. Um, M- anyway, maybe
1: then they'd pay me a bit more as well, so that, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be very good, yeah. Anyway, my question tonight is actually
6: regarding communications, and it's about uh, geostationary communication-type satellites. And the question is this. When one of the various space agencies launches uh, a a geostationary satellite and places it into orbit, could you tell me first of all approximately what height they are above the Earth's surface and how do uh, they set the satellite's velocity so that it maintains a geostationary position and uh, how do they stop them from drifting over the course of
0: time? Okay, well, the f- first bit of the question, the height that they actually go up to is about 22,300 miles. So that's about the height that we they send these rockets to. Now, how they get there is, basically, they stick the stuff on the top of a rocket, they launch the rocket at, you know, quite incredibly high velocities, to be honest, sort of kilometres per second at the, at when they get to the top, or kilometres per... Well, anyway, hugely high speeds, anyway, when they get to the top of the atmosphere. And, basically... It's all a case of computer control. We've now been doing this for a number of decades, firing these rockets up into orbit. And uh, it's all basically been practice, uh, computer control, to get the fine detail right. What they also often do is they they launch these things, they get them in roughly the right orbit, they sort of watch them for a while, monitor them to make sure that they're close, and then they actually use smaller thrusters on this spacecraft itself to sort of maneuver into exactly the right orbit. And obviously, like you say, these things can drift and they can move, and that's caused by the influence of the moon, possibly. Or also, the Earth is not an exact sphere. That can also be, because it's funny shape, that can also cause things to wobble around a bit. Um, and basically, all they do is they use these small thrusters and keep monitoring these uh, satellites to actually keep them in exactly the right orbit and keep them just where they're supposed to be. I suppose the bottom line
1: on this, Phil, is that
0: uh, what
1: we're talking about with geostationary satellite is something which is over one point on the Earth's surface at all times, so you can always see the satellite, because if it goes at the same speed of rotation as the Earth, in terms of angular rotation, it's always going to stay in the same place in space relative to that bit of the Earth.
0: Absolutely true. So you'd find them directly above the equator, you only get them above the equator, and they just sit directly above a point, and they use them for telecommunications often, if you've got satellite TV at home, it's a geostationary satellite that's used for your your satellite TV. Because
1: I was looking at, um, because obviously at the equator the Earth is about 24,000 miles around, it takes 24 hours to do one complete revolution of the Earth, therefore the Earth's running at the equator at about 1,000 miles an hour, therefore a satellite out in space is much further away, it's got to go a lot quicker. Satellites in space at that kind of orbit are doing something in the order of 8,000 miles an hour to to cover the distance, which is pretty damn fast, isn't it? It's
0: incredibly fast, yeah, absolutely, and that's why we use such huge rockets to launch these things But but the other point
1: is that that bit of space that that Ray's talking about, there aren't that many vacancies up there, are there? Because it's one one distance from the Earth, and therefore you just have one orbit, which is at that that point from the Earth, so it's getting pretty crowded.
0: Absolutely, and uh, this can be a problem, and not only for that orbit, but for other uh, Earth orbits where we use uh, satellites and things. And we've seen that recently with the uh, Chinese... Satellite that's been destroyed, uh, they use that basically to demonstrate their satellite-destroying technology. And, um, you know, it's created a lot of debris in orbit, and this debris is now actually starting to go on to actually smash into other satellites and damage and destroy other satellites. So it's actually quite a problem. This wonder do you insure
1: for that. So is there an insurance uh, company that insures satellites, then, Phil? I have no idea.
0: Uh, I don't think I'd like to be the... G- that China blows up a satellite? I don't think I'd <laughs> like to be that insurance company now, though, if I'm perfectly honest. <laughs> Does that uh, cover that one for you, Ray?
6: Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Quick go of the quiz. Uh, go on then, put okay.
1: me on the spot. A chocolate causes spots and acne. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction?
6: I think that's fact.
3: Um, apparently, oh <laughs> apparently not. Several trials, including one on medical students, have failed to find any link between chocolate and acne and the amount of spots they develop. I do. Okay, well, you, you've got to get this one right
1: to stay in in the game, Ray. Okay. Okay. The pitch of a fire engine or a police car siren gets lower as it comes towards you, and then gets higher as it goes away again. Science fact or science fiction?
6: Uh, it's the other way
1: around.
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, when the car approaches or the on the siren approaches, all the waves get bunched together, so they so they vibrate faster, it gets higher, and as it goes further away, they get stretched out, and so they vibrate more slowly, and the pitch gets lower.
1: Ray, thanks. It's been great having you on the programme, one out of two. Thanks very much, Chris. That was Ray in Sutton Coldfield. If you have any questions for us, it's our science question and answer show this week. Email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Waiting in the wings, Richard Van Norden from Chemistry World is going to give us all the fun and funky latest news from the world of chemistry, including why tomatoes used to taste like cucumbers. And we'll also be answering some more of your science questions. Now it's time to cross the pond and uh, get up uh, with the science update from Bob and Chelsea. They're going to be taking a look at why high IQs don't necessarily mean you're going to be successful, and certainly in the
2: financial stakes. So, Bob and Chelsea, over to you. These question-and-answer shows always make us at Science Update marvel at the incredible raw braininess of Dr. Chris. And, in fact, we're a little jealous. But this week, we have some stories that make us feel just a little bit better. It turns out that having a high IQ isn't always what it's cracked up to be. First, Chelsea's here to tell us why that's true in formal education.
5: Kids need more than just high IQs to do well in school. In fact, kids' ability to regulate their thinking and behavior may be more important, especially when they're young. This is from developmental psychologist Clancy Blair of Penn State, who studied students in the U.S. National Preschool Program Head Start. He found that kids who could best control their impulses, attention, and emotions did better on academic tests, especially in math. He says unlike innate intelligence, this is something kids can get better at with practice and help. You
8: know, I would say to a parent, you want your child to do well in school, don't worry so much about intelligence. That's not really where you you want to be putting your anxiety or your concerns. Really, think about your child's ability to be well-regulated in the classroom.
5: He says this suggests that if schools want kids to learn facts, they need to teach these less tangible abilities first. Thanks, Chelsea. A new
2: study shows that being smart may help you earn more, but it doesn't help you get rich. Study author and economist Jay Zagorski is at Ohio State University. Looking at decades of data on over 7,000 Americans, he found that generally the higher your IQ, the bigger your paycheck. But there was no relationship between IQ and total wealth. In other words, your savings and assets minus your debts.
6: One possible reason is that people say, oh, I'm
3: earning higher income. There's no reason for me to save right now. I can always earn higher income than, say, other people. So whenever I need money, I can just earn it.
2: Strangely, he also found that people with just slightly above average intelligence were the least likely to have financial problems like bankruptcies, overdue bills, and maxed out credit cards, while both the dullest and the brightest got into more trouble.
5: Thanks, Bob. Well, we hope that puts you in your place, Naked Scientists. Next time, we'll summon up all our mental powers to tell you about your skin's natural defenses against infections and how bacteria in your stomach could help prevent asthma. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
2: And I'm Bob Hirshon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists.
1: Thank you very much to Bob and Chelsea from Science Update. You can find out more from their website at scienceupdate.com. It is the Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave, and Phil, and it's our science question and answer show, which we do once a month to try and get through all these questions and emails that you send us. More on those coming up shortly. Right now, it's time to join Richard Van Norden from the Royal Society of Chemistry and Chemistry World magazine. Um, because, Richard, last month you told us about why cars were grinding to a halt because of silicon in the petrol. But this time, totally different uh, kettle of fish, we've got a problem with beetles homing in on the smell of bees.
8: Yeah, well, the European and the American honeybee are having some real problems with the small hive beetle, uh, which is successfully invading their colonies. And the problem the bee has is that when an invader comes in, it normally stings it uh, and uh, releases some pheromones, its alarm system to tell other bees to come in as well. Unfortunately, uh, scientists at the University of Florida have found that the small hive beetle is more sensitive to the alarm pheromone than the bee is so it gets there faster than the bee does
1: in defence. So what happens when the, when the beetle actually goes into the beehive? What's it actually do to the bees? Yeah,
8: the problem for the bees is actually the beetle's larvae, uh, which feed
1: on the honey, actually defecate
8: in the honey, uh, feed on the whole colony, and often this is just so bad for the bees that they have to exit before they can uh, get the beetles. What's worse is that uh, the scientists have found that the, the, bee, uh, the beetles carry with them a fungus, a yeast fungus, which actually actively releases this alarm pheromone as well because the beetle is more sensitive than the bee so it actually helps the beetle
1: So in other words it, it creates a hot spot of the hive because the fungus makes more of this chemical so then you get bees, beetles being attracted to where there's obviously a good supply of food and lots of other beetles to mate with
8: Yeah, um, there's no problem for the African uh, bee and uh, we don't know why as yet and this might be linked to the uh, mysterious disappearance of, of uh, entire bee colonies uh, in North America and Europe this winter Although uh, this uh, small hive beetle hasn't been found in Europe, could be something to do with it.
1: Because there's another mite, isn't it? The Varroa mite has been implicated in the destruction of, of North American bee colonies, hasn't it?
8: Mm. Well, no one actually knows exactly what's going on there. I mean, bizarre things like mobile phones, pesticides, um, poor beekeeping uh, practice, all, all being called into account, but no one quite knows what's going on. So, so the jury's
1: still out on the still plight out of the poor honeybee if it's of the European persuasion. At That's least. right, yeah. Now what about this business with understanding how the lungs defend themselves? We've heard our honeybees defend their hives, but how do the lungs keep themselves clean? Well this
8: is fascinating. Uh, this is something called the Virtual Lung Project uh, in, uh, in North Carolina. And what they're trying to do is, as you say, work out how the lungs uh, defend itself, stops invaders coming in. And you might know that the the lung uses a, a load of tiny hairs on the surface of each cell called cilia, uh, which beat along uh, mucus, which guides dirt away from your lung passages. Um, and uh, they're trying to work out exactly how on earth these these little hair-like things can beat together in unison. It's like kind of whiplash motion, guides the fluid along. And uh, obviously they've got some computer models, and you can actually grow the cilia in a Petri dish, but uh, in order to check out some of their predictions, they've actually made uh, little models, like making a model of a ship, they've made the model of the cilia, and they've got uh, they've got molds, and they pour in some some liquid polymer and solidify it, and you end up with these little hairs. The great thing about these hairs is they're actually magnetic. So like, they also life sized They are they are life size. They are cilia sized, which is very small, uh, micrometers long, and, uh, and nanometers across. So very thin, and uh, they're actually magnetic. So by waving magnetic fields under them, so they're like kind of bendy whip shaped iron filings. You can get them to beat just like the cilia in the body do
1: you can ask important questions about how the lungs keep themselves clean and why some people might be, might be more predisposed to lung infections than others, but are there any other practical applications of this rather than just a theoretical understanding?
8: Yeah, I mean, they actually, because they move fluids along, they can actually be used to mix and move fluids in what's called a lab on a chip where you take a massive laboratory, put it onto a tiny silicon chip, so you're mixing chemicals on a chip, very, very hot property uh, in, in science right now. And they suggest might be a new way to mix fluids together on these small chips.
1: Sounds cool. And uh, lastly, something which is uh, a big favour of mine, two favourites of mine, are tomatoes and cucumbers. But you're telling, telling me here that once upon a time, the humble tomato would have tasted more akin to a cucumber.
8: Well, possibly. This is this is fantastic. These are some Japanese researchers, and they've been looking at, at ways to try and increase some more interesting traits into your tomatoes. Uh, and what they did was they, uh, they crossed a, a cultivated tomato with uh, a wild uh, cousin, uh, and uh, the, the baby tomato they got out of this, it appears to have an enzyme inside it which which can make the compounds, uh, as well as obviously the compounds responsible for tomato flavour, also the other chemical compounds are responsible for the for the flavour of cucumbers and melons. The problem is that when these compounds are found in, in things other than cucumbers and melons, they taste distinctly off.
1: Well, it's because I suppose we've got used to that, particular chemical milieu we have grown tomatoes and bred them the way we have to have the flavor that they do because we like it and so if you fiddle with it and put something that shouldn't be there in that sort of chemical combo you end up with something that does taste distinctly strange that's
8: exactly right and i mean it's quite possible that in the past um, wild strains of tomatoes which of course have far more genetic variation than our cultivated strains could well have had this enzyme able to make both types of chemical compounds What they're really looking to, of course, is is not to make your tomatoes taste, once again, like cucumbers. Um, That would taste apparently rather soapy, they say. Uh, What they're trying to do is work out how to um, avoid making them taste like cucumbers. So if you know exactly what's going on, if you know the genes that are responsible, you're trying to introduce something else like a better colour or a better flavour, you can avoid accidentally putting in the
1: cucumber gene. Certainly food for thought. Richard, thank you very much. That's Richard Van Norden, who is from the Ross Society of Chemistry and Chemistry World magazine, and you can find out more about what he does on the web at chemistryworld.org. The Naked Scientists,
0: supported by The Welcome Trust. This week's Kitchen Science is about using a magnifying glass, usually used to make things look bigger, to make a small image on your wall. Ben Balser and Dave Ansell went to see what they could see.
9: Hello, thank you very much. We're here in St Mary's School and I'm with Gemma and Bronwyn. Say hello. Hello. And today I've also got Dave Ansell with us. Hello Dave. Hi there. And what are we going to be looking at today, Dave? We're going to be making strange images with glass. Okay, so do you two girls like science at school? Yeah. yeah. And what what is it about science that you like?
7: That you get to test out different experiments.
3: And do you think it's fun? Yeah. Okay, Dave, do you think people at home can try this? This is incredibly easy. All you need is a magnifying glass, a window with something fairly bright outside, and a white piece of paper or white wall. Okay, well, I found a wall over here, so uh, if we take the girls over this way and we can see what they think will happen. Okay, Jammer, if you'd like to put the magnifying glass maybe 10 to 30 centimetres away from the wall, just move it backwards and forwards until you see something interesting on the wall. So, what do you think you're going to see?
7: Children playing
3: in the sun. Ah, OK. And have you used a
9: magnifying glass before? Yeah. What for?
7: It's studying different bits of the flower.
9: OK, so you use it to make, make the things you see look bigger?
7: Yeah.
9: OK, so if you've got yourself a magnifying glass and a patch of bare wool in the window, then feel free to try this out. Uh, if you can call into the studio and let us know what you think will happen, we'll be
0: back with you later on so if you think you know what will happen when you hold a magnifying glass about 30 centimetres from a wall with a window behind you please let us know there's a copy of naked scientist book to uh, first person who gives the correct answer
1: got an email here dave this is from fred and scott just emailed us and they said hi there dr chris i have a question if you hold a sheet of paper in two fingers at one end so it curls downwards why does it lift up if you then blow along the top side and let's see where it go
3: so chris is holding a piece of paper and he's blowing it. And okay, yeah, is, is,
1: OK, it is lifting up,
3: but why? OK, so what happens, if you blow air over a curved surface, it tends to stick to that surface. It's called the Chandra effect. And if you imagine it sticking to the surface, if the paper's bending downwards, it's going to pull that air downwards. And if you, if you push something, it pushes you back. So if the paper's pushing the air downwards, the air's going to push the paper upwards and it's going to lift up. It's actually exactly the same principle as how um, wings fly. They push the air downwards, so the air pushes them up, and so the plane can fly. I've got a question here for you, Chris, from Dane Winter in Australia. Well, just, just before you so on, I was going to ask you. This is the same as you know when people you see people
1: doing that really cool thing, and you get a hairdryer and a ping pong ball, and you drop the ping pong ball into the hairdryer with the airstream pointing upwards, and the ball just bobs around in the jet stream. I mean, that's that's the coanda effect, isn't it?
3: Yeah, the same thing. When the ball comes off to one side, the air will stick to it it bend rounds, go off in the same direction as the ball is, which will push the ball back into the stream and it stays in the stream all the time. We've got the quest this question here from Dane Wilson in Australia. Um, he's wondering why when you scratch fingernails down a backboard, it makes people wig out as he puts it. <laughs> <laughs> he if for some reason he personally can't stand the feel of cotton wool rubbed between his fingers. One of his mates f- hates the feeling of drying a wooden spoon with a tea towel, which sounds more like we're getting out of doing washing up. Yeah. Is why do people have these strange sensations and sounds which just
1: You know, everyone listening to this across a whole swathe of the Northern Hemisphere now is going to be sort of, you can feel that spine tingling effect, can't you? Is it that the sound sort of in your head is climbing up your spine and you know what it's like when that person's going to put their fingers on that blackboard and go... (coughs) You know, now, you, people Chris. say, why do we have antibodies about that sound? Um, the reason is not known for sure, but there was, it was subject to a scientific bit of scrutiny. And researchers actually got volunteers and played them these sounds and saw how they responded to them. And they found there is a, a frequency response. In other words, in the ears, when you play sounds of a certain frequency, it elicits this very profound stress reaction and this, that spine-tinglingly, shockingly awful, I really can't stand that sort of sensation. What they suggested was that those sort of frequencies are the same kinds of sounds emitted by an animal that's in distress. So what they think's going on is that when you have an animal in distress, it emits sounds at that sort of level, we're all tuned to be sensitive to it so that we pick up on the fact there's danger around and we therefore should be prepared that we might have to run off. So it sort of galvanises you into action, that's one possibility
3: have got a question here from, he calls himself uh, James, he also calls himself Jam Sandwich, probably for Phil. Um, when spe- sending a spacecraft to the moon, which is 230,000 miles away, um, he reckons at 8,000 miles an hour. How did the command module reduce its speed in space because there's no friction, there's nothing to apply the brakes to and land in a graceful way?
0: Well, actually, this is... Um, again, it's, it's sort of like the question we had earlier. It's all based on rockets and thrusters. Uh, basically, when they went to the moon, they didn't just fire straight at the moon and hope to slow down in time. They actually went into orbit around the moon first and then a small command module detached from the from the orbiter module and went down to land on the, uh, on the surface. Now, actually, it was quite a hair-raising moment. There was a computer control... Uh, set to guide the spacecraft in at a particular point but actually the first uh, space flight when Neil Armstrong got down to the surface he realised they were going to land in a boulder field which would actually probably disable the spacecraft or possibly they were going to crash basically he had to take manual control away from the computer and actually when he finally landed he only had about 16 seconds of fuel left when he finally touched down on the surface
1: that was a bit hair-raising i should
0: think wasn't it a little bit but these guys you know are test pilots they're trained to do this sort of stuff so all fair play to them
1: don't forget we're running a teaser this week on the naked scientist which is can you tell us how many one gigawatt power stations would you need to replace or produce the equivalent amount of energy that the gulf the gulf stream the warm water in the sea brings north to europe we've heard from diane in norfolk i think she's probably the closest so far she reckons it's three million cool um cool. Okay. Go no, go. i was just gonna say have you have you got any other um sort of suggestions on that one yet no no
3: we... more suggestions coming okay.
1: in well tony's oh, in Westcliff. hi tony
6: hello sir Hello. uh, Evening. Sorry, I'm still asleep. (laughs) Sorry,
1: Tony's in Westcliff, Australia, where it's morning.
6: Tony, hello. Now, what I was going to ask you was uh, very small bugs like bacteria and so on... Do they have any t- intelligence?
3: I mean, they haven't got a brain, have
1: they? No, they haven't got a brain. And, and it's quite pertinent that you asked this, because I, I asked a sort of similar question to someone who's actually going to be on next week's edition of The Naked Scientist when we're talking about bugs and viruses and fungi. Uh-huh. And that's Gillian Fraser. Because I said, you know, bacteria don't have a brain, but how do they work out where they are, where they want to go, where their food is? Because bacteria have these tiny propellers that can push them along, make them swim. So how do they know where they want to go? And, and what she said was... On the surface of a bacterial cell, there are lots of these sort of receptors. They're like docking stations for chemicals. And so the bacteria can taste on their surface what the outside environment around the bacterial cell is actually like. Now, by comparing chemically how many of those receptors have got things that they like locked onto them, there'll be more receptors lock- with things locked onto them closer to a food source than on the side of the bacteria further away. Oh, so they can hard. use that as a sort of guidance mechanism to tell them which way to go. Similarly, if there's something they don't like, and it's in higher concentration on one side than on the other, then they know to sort of move away and how go they in they the opposite direction. How tell themselves? Sorry. Ah, well what they've got is a tiny propeller on the back called a flagellum, oh, I, yeah. and this is a protein motor, it's, it's almost identical to a little motor, and what it does is it burns energy, and the energy when it burns makes the protein change shape, and it does it very very fast, and it whizzes round quite literally like a propeller, in fact bacteria go so fast that they're in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's fastest moving object. They, fa- they can actually, relatively speaking, they fly faster than a jumbo jet. They can do 60 times their own body length in less than a second. So they are the world's fastest swimmers if, uh, if you're a bacterium and you've got one of these propellers on the back end.
6: What, can I ask then, what about sperm? Because, you know, all animals, uh, sperm are the same, basically, but they wriggle, don't they? I mean,
1: is that the same sort of thing? Spot on. They also have uh, a very similar thing. It's not called um, it, it, well. It's a very similar thing. The sperm also have these flagellae. They also have the same sort of protein motor, and they burn energy to make the, the to make the back end of the sperm wiggle, and it wiggles in a sort of rotary way, which pushes the sperm along. That's spot on. Absolutely right. Oh, very interesting. Thank you very much. That's all right. Quick, go to the quiz. Oh yeah, quiz. Yeah, right. Okay. Pla- uh, the the question that here we've got is: Things look blue underwater because of the colour of the sky. Is that science fact or science fiction?
0: I would say fiction. Absolutely true. Things look blue underwater because the water actually soaks up red light so lets the blue light through so everything looks a bit bluer.
1: (laughs) Hold on, that's right, Tony. Next question. In summer, a tree drinks about 60 gallons of water every single hour. Do you think that's fact or fiction?
0: I would say that's right too. Absolutely A recent review on this topic, uh, from 1977, not that recent, actually. Recent, Phil, I don't think so. (laughs) Not that (laughs) (laughs) recent. Suggests that a single 47-foot maple tree drinks 219 litres, so 58 gallons of water, every hour.
1: Tony, two out of two, that puts you in the lead so far. Oh. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientists. See you,
8: sir.
1: Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Dave and Phil. We're taking your science questions. David's in Norwich. Hello, David.
6: Hello, Chris. Um, I, I, I'm a very practical person, and I, I've got a, uh, an oven, which is um, it doubles as a, a microwave oven as well. Um, and it's lined with stainless steel, and I just wondered why. In fact, you can't put metal dishes in or metal trays inside an oven that's lined with stainless steel.
3: Um, well, when they say you can can't put metal dishes inside the oven it isn't you can put them in and sometimes it'll work and other times it won't um, basically what happens in a, in an oven is you get radio waves, microwaves, going backwards and forwards across the oven, and they reflect off the two ends. And it's a bit like sending waves down a, a piece of rope, wobble them backwards and forwards. If you wobble at the right speed, you get sort of a stationary pattern called a standing wave. Now, the problem is sometimes if you put a piece of metal in there, you can cause a reflection, which will send an awful lot more energy back into the magnetron, which is making the, um which is making the um, microwave in the first place, that can cause it to explode. I don't think that happens very often anymore. And the other thing which can happen is if you have two bits of metal which are very close to each other, um, and, the, and the, you get, so you get the radio waves make electricity run backwards and forwards along them, and sometimes you get a very big voltage between the two pieces and you can get sparks coming across. So it's fine as long as it's in big lumps at the edges, but sometimes, it, it's, sometimes it's not fine if you have the wrong configuration in the microwave.
1: Would you like to have a go at the quiz, David? Quick other um, quiz?
6: Can I have
1: a quick, quick other question? So, uh, A little tiny bit short this? for time, actually. All right, okay, it... quick other quiz All right, then. then. So, the yellow colour which you see in someone who is jaundiced is caused by an excess of the
3: chemical called bilirubin. Is that science fact or science fiction?
6: Um, fiction.
3: I'm afraid afraid not when you break down old red blood cells that are destroyed, uh, making this bilirubin, and all the iron goes into bilirubin, and that's what makes you go yellow. Sorry, David, you needed to get get it right in order to get get through
1: through this week, so sorry about that, but thank you for a great question. Great to have you on The Naked Scientist. Naked scientists with Chris, Dave and Phil. Now, we ask you this week for our kitchen science if you could get a magnifying glass, hold it up to the wall with a nice view of the window on the other hand and see what you see. John's on the phone. He's had a go at it in Colchester. Hi, John.
0: Hello, Chris. Well, I, I, I'm cheating. I'm a retired projectionist. So uh, what did you see?
1: Because we're really tight for time. But tell us what did you uh, see. An inverted picture of the buses going past. Righto, stay on the line, let's find out if you're right. Let's go back to the school with Ben and Dave and see what happened. Hello,
9: thank you very much. Welcome back to St Mary's School in St Neil's. So we're going to find out now what really does happen when you hold a magnifying glass just about a foot away from a wall. OK then, girls, so do you want to bring that magnifying glass up to the wall and we'll see what we can see?
7: The window's gone upside down and you can see a picture on the wall.
9: What's the picture of?
7: It's like the oh. field and children moving.
9: So you can see an image on the wall of what you could see when you look out the window? And what happens when you move the magnifying glass back and forward?
7: It gets more detail when you move it, like in the middle there. And if you move it out, then it'll go blurry.
3: So what's happening, Dave? Well, the easiest way to explain this is with another experiment I've got set up over here. So what do we have over here, Dave? Here I've got an even more simple setup. I've got a cardboard box with a piece of white paper in the back. And if you look at the front, I've made a hole in it. How big's the hole?
7: It's just like a pen or pencil's been pushed in and then taken back out.
3: Okay, so quite a small hole in there then, Dave. Yeah, that's all we need. And then what I'd like Bronwyn to do is to put a head in the box and I'm going to cover you up with a curtain to make it really dark in there and then have a look at the piece of paper. Well, while you're putting your head in the box, to give you something to look at, let's get one of your classmates to jump about by the window for you. So what can you see in there, Gemma?
7: I can see a boy jumping, a boy's head, a window...
3: Which way up is the picture? Upside down. That's right. Okay, do you want to come out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you were in there, you could see a moving picture of what was outside on the back of the box. And there wasn't even a piece of glass there. All there was making that picture was a little hole, wasn't there? Yeah. Okay, we don't actually need a lens to make the picture, but the picture with the lens was a lot brighter and better, wasn't it? Mm
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, so now we're going to try and work out why we get a picture in the box. Come over to the other side of the room quickly. Dave's now taken us over to a table, which is directly under two fluorescent lights. OK, so what happens normally if you put your finger in the way of a light?
7: blocks the light from coming into the room.
3: And what do we call that? Shadow. OK, brilliant. So now, because we've got two lights here, if we put my finger here, how many shadows have we got from that? Two. Yeah, that's right. My finger is getting in the way of the light coming from two different lights... So you get a shadow where it's getting in the way of the first light and a shadow where it's getting in the way of the second light. So now instead of having a finger which is blocking the light, I'm going to have a gap between two bits of paper which should let it through. If you look under there, what can you see?
7: It's really just shaded in blocks on the table.
3: So now you're getting several light patches, one for each of the lights in the ceiling. This is because you're sort of getting an anti-shadow from each light projected onto the table. Yeah? Yeah. So now if you imagine, having instead of having a big slit, you have a hole and you make the, the area under there really dark, anything bright on the roof will make a bright bit on the table. And so if you have a multicoloured roof, you'll get a multicoloured pattern on the table, which is an image, which is how you can make a picture with the box. The problem is if you make a really big hole, that picture gets really fuzzy. And so what a lens does is it takes all the light from one place on the ceiling and takes it to one place on the table. So you can get a much brighter picture with a much bigger hole without making it go fuzzy. So, Dave, why does the image come out upside down? Well, if you imagine the hole, and if you've got something up high, the light from it will come through the hole and end up low down, and so you have an anti-shadow low down. And if you imagine something low down outside, it will come up, light will come up through the hole, end up high up in the image, so you have an anti-shadow at the top of the image. So the whole picture is going to end up upside down. Because light travels in a straight line? That's it, Yes.
9: So I hope that you found the same thing happening at home with your magnifying glass producing a perfect if upside-down image on your wall. So now, from St Mary's School in St Neots, from Dave Ansell, from uh, Bronwyn and from
1: Gemma, I'd like to say goodbye. Bye.
7: Goodbye.
1: Thank you very much to Ben and to Dave. And John, looks like you got it right. So well done. Copy of Naked is on its way to you. Thank you for joining in on the Naked Sciences. OK, thanks. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Connie is in God Manchester. Hi, Connie. Hello. What was your question?
6: To know where all that water comes from for the trees.
1: I mean, 60 ah, gallons an hour. It's it's a hell of a lot. Big tree, 177,000 leaves was the count that they did when they actually tried to analyse how how many leaves a big 48 foot maple tree has. That's right. a leaf area of a sixth of an acre. Huge amount of leaf area. <sighs> In yes. the bottom of each of those leaves are thousands of tiny pores, miniature holes, which open up when it's a nice warm day and they lose water. And they do that because it's the way the plant pulls water up its stem to get water up into the leaves. So the plant has to lose water because it can't help it. And all of that has to come out of the ground. It's all ground water. Trees are very, very thirsty. And we just don't realise how much water there is in the ground and how much mm-hmm. these trees are drinking.
6: Yes. Very interesting. Thank you.
3: Well, thank you very, very much for taking part. Okay. See you later. Bye. Now, with the, teaser, um, the answer to teaser, teaser, the Gulf Stream, or the North Atlantic Drift, is a warm current heated in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. It comes across the southern states of the US, across the Atlantic, uh, into Europe. It moves about 80 million tonnes a second of water and about moves 1.4 petawatts of heat, which is 1.4 million gigawatts. Um, and so Diane from Norfolk was good, Alison was a bit high, Jen was disqualified, I'm afraid, Tony was a bit high again, but Fred and Scott have won. Fred and Scott were the closest, were they? Yeah, they, they got 1.4 million power stations, which is exactly to it, what to be I equivalent got.
0: equivalent to the Gulfstream. Very good. So what well I'm Fred and Scott, Phil. Excellent, bang on. And we've also got the winner of the Fact or Fiction. Uh, today, that was Tony from Westcliff, and he's also won a copy of the Naked Scientist book. So congratulations, Tony. OK, well, thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Phil. Uh,
1: that's it for this week. Next time, we'll be looking into the microscopic world that surrounds all of us. Ali Ashby's going to be here to talk about why fungi are fun, and we'll also be asking Tim Reggett why viruses make us ill, and in particular, will be asking Tim about noroviruses, Norwalk-like agent, the curse of shipping cruise liners. They get, people get on board and within days they're being sick. They then recover, they get off at the next port, the next bunch of people get on and they get sick too. What's that all about? Well, we'll find out next Sunday. Also, Ben's out with Cambridge University's Gillian Fraser. They're testing the claim that there are more bugs on a kitchen table than there are on a toilet seat find out whether or not it turned out to be true in fact you can see the dishes from the swabs that we collected they're on the naked scientist website if you go to naked forward slash forum in the general science section there's a poll running so you can vote for which dish you think came from which place in the meantime, why not check out for a bit more science the Nature podcast? That's at nature.com forward slash nature. And it just remains for me to say a very big thank you to Professor Andrew Bolton and Richard Van Norden who appeared on this week's show, to Phil and Dave, to Petro and Ben for doing a wonderful job on the production. Have a great week. See you on the Naked Scientists Forum. That's NakedScientist.com forward slash forum. And until next time, goodbye.